This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we have a guest joining us to help us uh, review a record. And uh, it's one that he he actually gave us a list of records he thought, hey, you guys should check out some of these. And then there was one on there that was like a glaring, you need to check this one out. <laughs> uh, because yeah. it's so far afield from what we've normally reviewed, but yet was still, I guess, you know, pretty important to the decade, yeah. even though it wasn't a band that sold a billion records. Um, so joining us from the Vinyl Emergency Podcast, Mr. Jim Hankey. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, guys. You suggest there was a bunch of records. You suggested that we check out um, John Spencer Blues Explosions album. Uh, now I got worry from 1996, and um, I want to get into that. But before we do, I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention the passing of Prince. Um, our last episode went up the Goo Goo Dolls "Hold Me Up" episode, which has a Prince cover, and we talked about Prince briefly on that episode, sort of in passing. Um, but it was recorded before he passed away and then it went up after he passed away. So we didn't get really to, to talk about it. So I thought now would be a good time to spend a couple minutes before we get into the John Spencer album talking about Prince. I just want to get your guys sort of, I guess, what you're left with in terms of his career and how it impacted you, his music and stuff. Jim, I'll start with you. I think you had some thoughts that you wanted to share. Yeah, Um you know, it's funny, we were talking off air, too, that I'm kind of in the same boat as far as mentioning Prince uh, on several different occasions, um, right up until he died. Um, there was an episode I did uh, recently, um, it was a preamble, I believe, to uh, an episode I did with Damon uh, Atkinson from Braid and Hey Mercedes, but uh, I was talking with a friend of mine, a record collector friend of mine, Rob Clark, who had attended the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction recently with Cheap Trick and NWA and all that stuff. And we were talking about past inductions and we talked about the 2004 uh, induction of George Harrison where Prince comes on and does this, you know, mind-blowing solo over While My Guitar Gently Weeps, a song apparently, according to Rolling Stone, that he had never heard up until he had to rehearse for this. And the whole reason he wanted to even play uh, this was because he wanted to play with Tom Petty. Like Prince wanting to play with Tom Petty is, is <laughs> kind of kind of blows my mind because he said "Free Fallen" is one of his favorite songs ever, um, and he just wanted the opportunity to play with Tom Petty. So Olivia um, George's widow was kind of skeptical about you know she basically wanted anybody who knew George to play uh, on that uh, on you know during that set, and Prince didn't know George Harrison. I don't think they ever met, and so she was skeptical about that. And I think Danny. Uh, Harrison and the um, organizers convinced her and, and and look how that turned out. I've, I've probably watched that solo now, you know, 25 times since he yeah. passed, passed away. Um, but also, um, not getting too off topic, but also um, my recent episode uh, on Record Store Day, I had um, taken it upon myself to drive to six different record stores in two states on Record Store Day just to interview store owners and people. Uh, in line for records because the podcast, if people haven't checked it out, is primarily about vinyl. And uh, I spoke with a gentleman in line who talked about, you know, Purple Rain being one of the first albums that was ever kind of gifted to him or, you know, that he kind of 
spun as a youth and um record store day was the day after prince had the emergency plane landing in western illinois um where apparently at the time it was flu-like symptoms um he was at a emergency room left we don't know yet as to whether or not he left on his own recognizance or whether he was actually you know whether he him and his crew left uh against doctor's orders or you know we don't know um but I was speaking with this gentleman and I said, oh, yeah, we almost lost Prince yesterday. And he didn't know about it. And I kind of told him about the emergency plane landing. And he said, um, oh, OK, well, I'm, I'm glad to know everything's OK in the world of Prince. Um, so, like, it just it baffles me to have to then, uh, you know, talk about talk about this so shortly after that. Like, we thought everything was was fine. Um, Prince is a guy who. You know, I grew up, I, I went to high school from 93 to 97. So my first real introductory to Prince uh, was from videos and such like Diamonds and Pearls and um, Cream and Seven and Get Off and Sexy Motherfucker and all that stuff. And uh, and then going back and understanding, you know, 1999 and um, Little Red Corvette and, and uh, I Would Die For You and all those classic songs. Um, like David Bowie, uh, I don't want to, you know, certainly compare Prince to David Bowie because they're two completely unique artists. But like David Bowie, it, it, he differs from the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or any of these other iconic musicians in the fact that I can't name one person I've ever talked to who thought Prince or David Bowie um, sucked. There are people out there, I'm sure we have friends who are like, you know, you've got the token friend who's like, eh, I don't really like the Beatles. I, yeah, the Beatles are overrated or, you know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, whether they're saying that just to be cool or whatever it is. But never, I mean, never will you, you, you would be hard pressed to find anybody who is a fan of music. Like, you know, if you got somebody who like just listens to the radio stuff and doesn't really fully invest in music, you know, maybe they would say this. But anybody like us who are diehard music fans who, who eat it and live it and breathe it. Um, I don't think you'd ever find anybody who would say this artist flat out sucks. Um, everybody liked Prince. Everybody liked David Bowie. And from what I understand, you know, Prince is a guy who just created stuff on a whim. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, and it's probably been shared a bunch of times, this story, this long 30-minute story that Kevin Smith tells about working with Prince on a project that has never seen the light of day. Uh, and it's one of many. It's one of possibly hundreds or thousands of things that Prince just kept vaulted up. Yeah. And dear God, like, you know, you've got Paisley Park where you can record whenever you want. You've got thousands upon probably millions of dollars at your disposal to literally just create music videos for songs that weren't singles. And they're just vaulted up, not because he was unhappy with the finished product, but because he can just he can just do it like mm -hmm. eh, that was fun. That was a fun Sunday. All right. You know, like lock it up and yeah. and no one ever sees it. Um, so I don't I mean, there's so much more that's going to be said about him in coming weeks and months and years and stuff. Um, he was just the most badass like he just that smirk, that smirk he would give to the camera or live or whatever. Um, you know, James Brown, Michael Jackson those guys didn't really have that look in their eye. Prince did. Prince had yeah. this just like, you know, you, you know, I'm the shit. I know that, you know, I'm the shit. Uh, it's, it's, it's un, 
it's unbelievable that he's gone and, and that confidence is unparalleled. Even when we talk about artists today that seem to exude that confidence like a Beyonce or Rihanna or, you know, Mick Jagger or something like that. I mean, there is no – they don't have the swagger. No one, not James Brown, not Michael Jackson, none of these artists had the swagger that Prince did. And when you when you create a <laughs> – I'm laughing, trying to keep from crying. Um, when you create a for a movie or a TV show or a play, where you kind of write in this like rock star role, like this this iconic like, oh, somebody's going to be a rock star, and they've got like a crew, they're decked out, they are you know quiet, but they can like run the room basically. That's Prince. Like that's like when anybody is like going like, okay, we need like a really like crazy rock star that basically lives on another planet and uh you know has crazy requests and but yet can still bring a room to to absolute silence just by like snapping his fingers um we had a real person like that and that's prince so um yeah so uh, that was a great point about the the like the confidence and the swagger Mm -hmm. because the people you listed off i think the one thing that makes him unique is that all of those people needed other people to help them make their music, right? I mean, even Michael oh, Jackson yeah. yep. couldn't really play an instrument. I mean, he would like vocally write his songs and 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 then have other you know musicians or Quincy yep. Jones come in and help him. Right. Prince could do everything, so he didn't need anybody. Right. I mean, he could sing, he could dance, he could do all the pop star stuff, but he could also pick up a guitar and play as good as anybody and write his own material and pretty much go in the studio by himself and do whatever it is he wanted to do, which that gives you swagger. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, he knew, like, I'm completely independent. Like, I don't, you know, he obviously had a lot of side musicians that were really important and great, but he would bring people in and out when he wanted, and he would do things himself when he wanted, and he pretty much had uh, the talent and maybe even more so he had put in the time to learn how to play you know, everything and do everything. So when he got to the point where he was a professional musician, it was just like, I'm going to do what I want to do because I, I can. Yeah. One thing that never comes up with when we look at iconic, like guitar players and stuff like Jimmy Page, um, I'll put slash in that category Prince. Mm -hmm. Um, they exude this cool, right? Like they, they have always have, um, they exude this thing that they are just like partying till four in the morning. They are, you know, uh, living a crazy lifestyle and they are some of the greatest guitarists that have ever lived. But to be one of the greatest guitarists that ever lived, we don't factor in how long Prince or Slash or any of these people had to sit in a room and practice, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. this doesn't, Prince isn't just pick up a guitar at seven and he's a virtuoso. Mm -hmm. Um, the fa- so so now picture how cool Prince is, right? But then picture how nerdy you have to be to learn to be that good at not only guitar but every instrument. Yep. Mm-hmm. So think about that dedication, and then think about when Prince came out, you know, in the eighties, and it's like he had to live this entire life of just being lot you know locked in to learning his craft. And then just kind of like, boom, you know, like a phoenix, I'm Prince. Yeah. Um, that's just unbelievable to me um, how, you know, we look at these really amazing musicians and don't factor in 
the years and years and years and blood and sweat of practice that had to go into that. And you're right. Like Prince could, he could like just cut you off. He could just like, I don't need you. That That's a phrase that I think keeps coming back. It's like he didn't need anybody. So the mm-hmm. people that he did choose to play with him, they, they were honored to be there because he, he wouldn't need them. There's no, nece- there's no necessity for four guitarists on a Prince stage, mm-hmm. but he want, he wanted that. He could have played all those. He could just have one guitar. It's just Prince. Mm-hmm. Um, and also one thing that keeps coming up too is his, uh, uh, the, the need to have and the want to have full bands full of, of women. Um, if anybody caught the SNL tribute uh, recently to him where they played all his performances, you know, most recently he's got a band, drums, guitar, bass, keys, everyone is female aside from him. And you just don't see that. Um, the only thing that comes close is a couple of years ago when Jack White would uh, go on tour, he would alternate nights. He would have an all-male band or an all-female band. Um, and that's pretty remarkable as well. But, um, you know, watching these super accomplished women who you're not, fam- you know, I, I I look at them and I'm not familiar with what bands they possibly played in or or what I would know them from because they look like they're from outer space. You know? <laughs> like they just they yeah. look they look crazy. One's got a cloak on. One's got half a shaved head and and looks like she's out of Mad Max or something. And they are like as good as Prince. So I was just thinking to myself, like, how do you find these people? If you're you're Prince, I mean, people know, you know, we know musicians and stuff and they know, you know, roadies who become guitar techs, who become, you know, maybe stage players, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, if you're Prince, you just, you can just like basically call these people into, you know, from, call these people from the ether and they're just like in your band and stuff. It's just I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but um, that's right. I have a little story about how Prince finds people. Actually, oh okay, um, I happen to you know something <laughs> that is crazy, and Jay will be like, "What the hell?" But um, okay. So my mother-in-law, who is a, a music fan, um, and her husband is my my father-in-law are as well. Um, they have a friend lived in. Uh, Lorraine and um, was really into music, but also into computers in like the early nineties when you would get onto like bulletin boards and like chat via that way. And um, she was on some sort of bulletin board for music and um, struck up, struck up a conversation again, this is like early nineties. So there's no social media or anything like that. Struck up a conversation with a guy over this bulletin board and um, this goes on for months. They're talking about music and they're talking about their lives and stuff. And it's not like a romantic thing. They're just sort of exchanging information. And, and he asked her what she does. And she worked in some sort of charitable field was her was her job at the time. And he's like, well, I'm actually I'm looking for someone to help me. Um, I'm, I have a little bit of money and I'm looking to do some charitable work. And she's like, oh, OK, well, actually, I've, I know quite about quite a bit about that. And um, he's like, well, do you think we could set up a meeting? A little weary about meeting some guy off the Internet. But she's like, OK. He's like, all right, well, I'm going to have my plane come and pick you up. And she's like, excuse me. And she's, he's like, well, um, my name is Prince and I'm a musician <laughs> and I'm looking for someone to to vet my charities for me. So he lands a plane 
his private plane in whatever private small airport there is in the Amherst Lorraine area. Jay, is there an airport up there? Yeah, there's a Lorraine County. Okay, so the the Prince Jet lands there, picks her up, flies her back to Paisley Park, and for like the next fifteen years, she works for Prince as his charity vetter and researches charities, figures out who he's going to work with, what donations are going to be made, sets up charitable events. And she does it all from her house in Lorraine. <laughs> and then when they have parties, the the Prince plane will fly in, pick her up, dry, fly her up to Minneapolis. She'll go to the party and then fly her back home. And that's what she did for like 15 years. And I know this is true because Katie, my wife, would show me these T-shirts that she would get from these events that were like special Prince events up in Paisley Park. And um, that she would bring back and give to Katie's mom, and then Katie's mom would give it to her. And so he definitely had a way of like <laughs> a unique way of finding people, whether it was through bulletin boards in the early 90s. I'm guessing he has like some sort of connection to like musicians who have who are virtuosos and who are go through a lot of training to play with him because he is such a virtuoso and. You're not going to get, you're not going to have like Maceo Parker show up off the street to play with him. Like Maceo Parker is an accomplished jazz musician. So he's got to have some sort of connections in places where he must know, oh, this is the amazing new bass, female bass player. It just came out of, you know, whatever Carnegie or whatever played with this, these people are. So that's my Prince story. Wow. <laughs> that's incredible. I mean, that's consistent with, I don't know if you guys saw the Van Jones uh, um, bit he did on the, on the news right after it was announced. But I mean, he, he said because he was a Jehovah's Witness prince that all the charitable stuff he was doing, he wasn't, he wasn't supposed to talk about it and basically told everybody else that knew him they weren't supposed to talk about it. And if right. they did, they knew they were going to be out of the circle again because – Basically, you know, he chooses who's in and who's out. So that's consistent with like him kind of working completely out of the public eye, despite mm-hmm. being a very public person, and uh, in, in orchestrating all of these things either for his band or, you know, he mentioned that the all the shows he had been doing those are all covers for charitable work. Like that's why he doesn't do like the big, um, you know, world tour kind of thing. You know, he does these like short little fly in, fly outs. Um, you know, if you think about it, you know, everybody else's contemporaries, you know, Paul McCartney every year is doing a mega tour that's promoted Guns N' Roses and all these other bands, you know, it's, it's, you know, a very public, uh, stadium or arena kind of thing. And he had really, to, to at least my memory, hadn't really done that kind of thing. It's always been like no. little one-offs or like maybe a month string of things or probably even shows that people don't even know about, you know, secret things or non-publicized so yeah i mean that's very consistent with uh with what he was saying i did go back and look at um i I still have some mix cassettes that i made when i was a teenager like and even young like i'm talking like 10 11 years old and they have like when doves cry and 1999 and and those things mixed in with like you know bon jovi and def leppard and all that stuff from the mid 80s to to that era. So I was definitely on board and, and I probably have everything digitally that he's released because I 
would find stuff in used bins. You know, you'd find like Emancipation or the Crystal Ball, you know, for like it's a triple disc or something like that ridiculous and you could get it for like you know 7 or 8.99 in the used bin in the early 2000s. So I ripped a lot of that stuff and and ended up selling the CDs. So I don't actually have the CDs anymore, which I regret because now when you <laughs> if you're going to go try to buy them they're going to be ridiculously overpriced. Oh yeah, I mean just from a, just from a vinyl perspective, I mean I've already just been combing discogs just to see what's happening and I mean it's just it's pretty ridiculous. Like I would I would really like um uh there's a, a hits uh two volumes of hits uh, yeah. things that came out and um I think I remember I I definitely don't anymore but I think I remember having the triple CD set of that when that came out and um yeah it had the just, b-sides as the third disc yeah yeah and I was yeah. just curious to see what that was going for on vinyl now and um yeah it's already I mean in the hundreds of dollars and stuff um I you know I'll 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 also say that I hadn't checked that out like, you know, a month ago. I have no idea if that's, you know, uh, good for that compilation or right. not. But, um, you know, I'm just with Bowie and, and all this stuff. I'm just anxious to see, you know, what that means for the vinyl market. Um, you know, uh, there are there are stores near me. You know, I live in suburban Chicago. There are stores near me that, you know, don't tend to increase price due to, um, you know, a, a, a rock star's death. Uh, which I appreciate greatly, but you know that's not the same for online retailers or you know other record stores. Certainly, it all depends. So uh, I, I wanted to mention the uh, <laughs> that that Prince kind of brought me back to music. Now that kind of jogging my memory here, I uh, I was really in as a really young kid into like Kiss and like classic rock stuff, right? So I was born in '74. So between like '74 and like probably the late '70s. I was really into that. I had my brother's Kiss records, whatever. Um, then for like three years, I didn't listen to music at all. Like I just didn't keep up with it. And I heard um, on the radio, I started hearing 1999 and Little Red Corvette. And also at that time, the band The Time were, were I think, had their hits and mm-hmm. were sort of becoming a thing. And, you know, going back pre-internet, like – you're you're at the mercy of what you hear on the radio, the time you hear it, whether or not you hear like them, you know, tell you who the artist was. So I remember loving 1999 Little Red Corvette and saved up my money, you know, I'm whatever, eight years old. And I go to the store to buy the record or the tape, the cassette. <laughs> I didn't know like it was Prince. I just kind of knew the songs. I ended up buying the time on mistake. Uh, and I come home and I've got my little like Fisher Price or whatever toy cassette player and I put the tape in and I'm like no that's not the song that's not the song <laughs> I get through the whole thing I'm like wait a minute I bought the wrong tape no oh, man. <laughs> so I had to take it I think I either took it back or I sold it but I ended up with getting 1999 and then I also bought uh, Minute Works Business as Usual and, and I, that was the only two cassettes I owned for probably three or four years until I really got into like, you know, Van Halen's 19.4 was big and sort of took off on all that stuff. But like for probably two or three solid years, the only music I owned and listened to on my little Fisher Price cassette player was Prince's 1999 and Men at Work. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so that's, that's great. Like, kind of brought me back after a couple of years of just not even knowing anything about music, kind of brought me back to music. Well, 
it's going to be an odd transition, but we should probably talk about the record um, <laughs> that we are are here for. So uh, this might be this might be the biggest swing from like the most polished, <laughs> most polished, um, uh, most uh, you know vir- uh, virtuoso of musicians into one of the the rawest, weirdest records. Oh uh, yeah, to, to come out in the the mid nineties for sure. Almost a deconstruction of music. Yeah, and in in a in a way. So we're going to talk about the John Spencer Blues Explosion and their 1996 album. Now I got worried that I mentioned earlier. Just so everybody's on the same page, I'm just going to explain who John Spencer uh, Blues Explosion explosion are. Uh, They formed in 91 in New York City. It was after the band Pussy Galore. And um, the band was made up, or is made up, because they just put out a record recently. Um, John Spencer on guitar and vocals and theremin. Uh, Judah Bauer on guitar backing vocals, harmonica, occasionally did some lead singing, um, and then Russell Simmons, not the Russell Simmons you're thinking of. This this is a different Russell Simmons. Uh, on drums, no bass player. Just put that out there. I'm always insulted when there's no bass player. It's all right. <laughs> we'll get past that. So put out a bunch of records. Slater Kinney doesn't have a bass player. I know. Okay. I'm a little offended by it, but that's all right. Oh, all right. Uh, put, put a bunch of records in the early 90s, and they signed a... Well, not a bunch of records, a couple records in the 90s, and then uh, for, uh, signed a Matador. First album on Matador was called Extra With, and uh, that came out, I believe, in 93. Orange was released in 94. You probably know that one because it had the single Bell Bottoms on it, and um, that was the probably the the single that got most played on college radio and whatnot. Also, if you listen to the sound opinions podcast, uh, it's part of their intro music, that song. And then the album we're reviewing. Now I got worry came out, uh, October of 1996. And as I mentioned, the band has continued to, um, put out records all the way up to last year. They put out the freedom tower, no wave dance party. And they've worked with a lot of, artists and toured with a lot of uh, a variety of artists working with um people like elliot smith back ad rock of the beastie boys uh solomon burke steve albini i mean just a, a, a wild selection of artists and on uh, this album actually features a dub narcotic uh cover and they worked with rl burnside prior to this record and he appears on this record so it's just a, a lot of stuff going on with this band kind of a critic darling, I guess you'd say, but never really caught on in, in the mainstream. I don't think, I think that's right. fairly, it's fairly evident. Ob- it's fairly obvious. It's fairly if obvious. If anybody just looks up live performances of theirs, I mean, I, uh, put up, um, you know, I, I had found a, a, a live version of two kinds of love from this album. Uh, and apparently it was on some kid show, uh, some like young, you know, like a younger, 
like maybe 10 to maybe age demographic was like nine to 14 or something like that. Um, and they just like, they just basically tear shit up for longer, longer than two kinds of love goes. Um, it's, it's unreal, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy to, it's, I, I can understand both spectrums. It's, you know, I'm watching that and I'm like, why doesn't this have 3 million views? This is the greatest thing ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then to the general public, it's like noise and, and ridiculousness. So part of the reason why I was interested in in doing this record is because last year I read uh, a book by Eric Davidson of the New Bomb Turks. It's called We Never Learned the Gunk Punk Undergut, 1988 to 2001. And this band uh, is featured in that book. Okay. And John Spencer specifically talks about uh, the Gibson Brothers, which were a Columbus, Ohio band. And about the influence of the Gibson brothers on the sound of the John Spencer Blues explosion. Um, basically, that when the John Spencer Blues explosion started off, they were basically being the Gibson brothers part two. Um, and then sort of evolved into their own sound from there. But uh, that book is really interesting because it talks, I mean, basically, Columbus, Ohio is a little bit more important than just creating. Um, bands that we've talked about, like Gaunt and Holland Maggie and Thomas Jefferson Slave Apartments, there was actually a, a, a punk '80s scene that, with the New Bomb Turks in the late '80s and '90s, and then the Gibson Brothers. Um, there was a band called the Cheater Slicks who had moved from another state but came to Columbus. Um, all these were rather influential bands in terms of uh, what was going on with this time period of 88 to 2001 that he covers um so getting to talk about john spencer get to talk a little bit about that and um we should probably just dive into the record a little bit since it's uh already our, our overall opinions have <laughs> or or impressions have bubbled up a little bit jay were you familiar with john spencer had you listened to him at all yeah i remember when i got to wfal the radio station college i remember this i think this record had just come out okay and it was pretty being pushed pretty hard um and i felt like it was the first time i'd heard sort of this deconstructed raw garage blues oriented kind of thing that Mm -hmm. i think later on became way more commercial um so it definitely struck my ear at that point i hadn't heard anybody doing that until I heard him and heard this record. So, yeah, I, I'd heard some of the songs at the time, and I, I remember it being pushed quite a bit. Jim, were you a fan back in the day of John Spencer, or was that something you acquired later? Um, this is uh, kind of interesting. I'm, I'm glad we picked this record because I remember, um, and I talk about this a little bit on my uh, podcast in earlier episodes, of I remember growing up in Milwaukee and um, being turned on to indie music through basically – uh, Atomic Records, uh, which was a record store on the um, east side of, of Milwaukee. And then uh, Milk Magazine, which was this free zine that um, a guy, Josh Modell, who worked at Atomic, um, put out with uh, his publishing partner, Jim Miner. And Josh Modell uh, currently is one of the uh, uh, bigwigs at the AV Club. Um, so I talked with him a bit about um, that influence on me and such. And, and through Atomic, I remember, and through Milk, I remember seeing ads for Extra With and Orange and even the Boss Hog album, which came out in 95, 
It was John Spencer and um, his wife, who uh, whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, so I remember seeing that artwork. I remember seeing those things and not really knowing much about it. And I got now I got worry for the first time on tape. Uh, it was taped for me by a uh, a girl in my uh, high school homeroom. Uh, she was an incoming freshman, and it was my job to take all the incoming freshmen in the homeroom, like around the school and stuff, and kind of show them uh, around because this time this record came out in fall of. 96. So this would have made me a, a senior. And this uh, particular uh, girl, I remember she was a, a total uh, raver, like uh, the gigantic Jinko jeans, the sweaters with the cuffs that like cover your hands and stuff like that. And so I guessed that she was into like rave music or like, you know, techno or, you know, whatever. And I don't know if so there was some day like later in, it must have been, you know, fall or maybe even early 07 where we must've been talking about music and she um, told me she was going to tape uh, some bands for me. And she gave me this tape of uh, John Spencer blues explosion. Now I got worry on side a and another record that I might've even brought up with you guys. I forget if, if I did, but um, the one that's carried with me even more than this record is Harmacy uh, from Sebado. And that was on side B. And, um, I just I absorbed these records like crazy. Like um, that's pretty much my first um, uh, introduction to John Spencer Blues Explosion as well as Sebado. I didn't get into Sebado when Bake Sale came out. So um, this, like Jay said, this was also kind of my first introduction into this raw, garagey, uh, broken, crazy sound. And um, you know, John Spencer Blues Explosion is, you know, not the first and not the last to do this kind of style um uh, there's a band uh flat duo jets that mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people cite as a big influence jack white especially uh growing up in milwaukee there's a band called the mistreaters um that uh you know i think if they don't cite john spencer as an influence um it, it falls in the same ballpark at least and yeah like all i knew and i don't remember how i read about it or how i knew but even before i ever had seen footage of them playing, I had somehow known that they ended songs uh, with John Spencer saying things like, you know, blues explosion, or uh, they would end a song and you just go, the blues is number one, like over and over and over. <laughs> I have no idea how I knew that. It was just this, this ridiculous, like, uh, you know, carnival barker uh, magnetism that, that he has. It's just ridiculous. And, and to end this power trio, Again, with your, like you said, with no bass to just like they end a song and he just goes into the mic, blues explosion for no reason. It's just, I, I somehow knew that, uh, even though they didn't do it on this particular record. Uh, or, you know, shouting, the blues is number one. Like, you know, it's crazy. Um, so that's kind of my introduction uh, to this to this record. Jay, tell me something you liked. Well, I mean, you can tell that, uh, you know, he's a guitar player. I felt like listening to this, I could tell he's a guitar player first. Um, I think there's some really cool interpretations of, you know, taking blues oriented riffs that can get a little stereotypical and injecting them with uh, more broadness, energy, sometimes just pure speed, um, you know, playing them faster. So they approach more of a, a punk feel. Sometimes it makes them feel more funky. It's an interesting uh, sort of deconstruction and then repurposing of, you know, very traditional kind of 
you know, progressions and chord structures and those sorts of things. So I enjoy that aspect. Um, there's a lot of bands that, you know, that do that, that I find, you know, pretty interesting. Um, so I, I think the guitar stuff is, is pretty cool. And I think the overall approach of the, of, you know, how to de deconstruct the blues and reinvent it, uh, into a new sound is, is works pretty well. Jim, is there something that stands out for you on this record that you enjoy? Uh, just the energy. Um, I'll say that I don't really look at John Spencer or Judah Bauer as exceptional guitar players necessarily. I think they complement each other super well, and I appreciate and love the, the fuzziness and the unpredictability of this band. Um, I think that's what kind of drew me to the record uh, itself. Um, one of my favorite things with Jack White when he plays guitar is not necessarily a really amazing technically good solo it's when it sounds like his guitar is about to break in his hands you know when um there's just feedback or it sounds kind of clumsy or you know whatever that's what i really enjoy and that this album is that to a t um from the very first i don't know if we're gonna go track by track or what but no, 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 the, no 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 now 16 no, songs <laughs> right, right. That, that was that was you know from the very beginning. You know, if people go to Spotify or however and you access this record right now, in the first fifteen seconds, thirty seconds, is John Spencer screaming at the you know I mean just. It is a ridiculous introduction to an album. I, I had read an article, uh, some sort of interview with Connor Oberst years ago, and he talked about on Bright Eyes Records specifically making the first song really agitated or really hard to listen to for somebody who might just be coming to the band uh, immediately or coming to the band raw and not really – it was his way, whether whether I agree with this or not, there you know, catch me on a different day and I and I think it's kind of ludicrous, but on other days I think it's pretty smart. Um, it was his way to, to make a track that didn't appeal to everybody be the first song. It was his way to weed out people uh, who might just like be listening to it um, to be popular or, or whatever. And um, and that's that's been interesting to me, to say the least. Uh, and this uh, this record is just if you get past the screaming for the first 30 seconds, if you can get past that, um, this, that same energy is throughout this record. Um, you know, I think it's, I think that's what it is. So when, it, when you ask like what attracts me to this record, it's just this spot, the spontaneity, everything sounds improv. Everything sounds, uh, raw and, um, immediate. And I think that's what really brought me to this record because again, this is like fall of 96. So, um, you know, in utero was just three years prior. And I thought in utero at the time was like one of the most punk things I'd ever heard because I really only, you know, got into this music around the time it, it became popular. I admit it. Like I didn't 
you know, I <laughs> like Mike Watt says, you can't help when you were born. And, uh, you know, I got into grunge basically on the ground floor of, you know, a mainstream acceptance of it. So for me, this record, it was, was one of the craziest, most intense things I'd ever heard at that point. I think that's a good description of, of what I like. It sounds improvised, but I mean, we all know you, you can't go into the recording studio and just, I mean, I guess you could, it would be a, probably a clusterfuck, but you can't go into the recording studio and just start playing your instruments and hope something comes out. Like there's a madness to this, but it's, it's a well thought out madness. And there's a right. lot of really cool guitar riffs on these songs. Um, there's a careful calculation with never sort of repeating the same idea in terms of structure or, or in terms of feel. I mean, there it's all over the place and yet it's cohesive, which I think is what's cool about this record in that it sounds like it all belongs together, but it sounds like it's all coming from different planets in terms of you got stuff that's really bluesy, riff based but then there's no like chorus to it like you would expect in like a blues song and then there's other songs that just sound like absolute chaos but yet they might go into some part that actually is melodic and these juxtapositions of of sort of approaching uh melodies that are uh catchy but then abandoning them really quickly and then finding other parts grooves and and riffs and licks that are so close to like something you might hear like from an early keith richards but just like 10 seconds of it and then it's gone and then it's all of a sudden it's in some other weird dimension um it's an interesting listen it's definitely not for everybody i mean this is such a small i think or it's going to appeal to such a small group of people um, but it's going to be people who are, you know, adventurous and who like hearing other weird sounds. I mean, I'm surprised. I'm, I guess I'm not surprised that they were on Matador. I think that this record actually got distributed by Capital is probably mm-hmm. the is probably the crazier thing because I'm guessing they went ba- based off of Bell Bottoms being a, a minor college radio hit and thought, oh, okay, well we'll we'll bring the the next record up to Capital for distribution and then. They get this record. <laughs> I'd love to be the capital exec who puts this album in and listens to the first 30 seconds and goes, well, what? Uh, how are we supposed to do anything with this? Like, this is crazy. I want to I want to uh, piggyback onto what you said about the, the variety on this record and how everything kind of sounds like it's from other sources or planets, but, but then sounds cohesive. I would put this uh, in a category of being a premier uh, driving record on a trip or, or something because, and, and I bring up Mike Watt, I brought up Mike Watt before and I'll bring him back into it. Um, his album, ball hugger tugboat, um, which is uh, fantastic. It fits in the same way in that like good driving records should be, should have a lot of variety. Um, they don't necessarily need to be long. They should, they could be long, but having a lot of variety and a lot of pace changes and a lot of, things that keep you on your toes. Um, and that's, that's what this album has. I feel it's a really, really good, like windows down driving record. Um, that has a lot to do with, obviously it's ties to blues and to, you know, early rock and roll and stuff like that, as well as, as well as garage and punk and, 
and things of that nature. But um, I find I find it to be a really really good driving record. Hmm. So the bonus uh, tracks on the iTunes edition. There's radio ads for this. There's four radio ads. I don't know if you guys listened to those, but I did. One, I did. Yeah. Yeah. One starts with the. Uh, mentioning the Matador Capital, and then says, "This is too much rock for one record label." <laughs> so they address it like upfront on one of the ads. Can somebody look up? Did they have? Um, did they have any ties to Grand Royal at any point? I thought they you might know, have. That's what my assumption was when I listened to this because I heard a lot. To me, I was hearing, especially at the front half of the record, I was hearing kind of that era of Beastie Boys, and just my memory, I was like, "Oh, was this a?" A Grand Royal release was their connection there because it it kind of felt like like it should have been um, right. in some ways. Yeah, because I mean, there's a through line. They're vastly different bands, but there's a through line I feel between Beastie Boys, John Spencer Blues Explosion, and then something like Luscious Jackson, mm-hmm. um, which obviously was tied to Grand Royal quite a bit. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, if I if you hadn't if we hadn't discovered that Matador and Capital both kind of like jointly released this, I would have assumed it would have been. If it was on Capital, I would have just assumed, oh, so it's a Grand Royal imprint then. So, yeah, there's a couple tracks on here that sound, well, there's, I mean, fuck shit up. Track four is looped, but there's some other songs where there's moments where they, it sounds loopy. I don't know if it's just a performance thing or mm-hmm. um, if it actually is. I think like Whale, like you hear the guitar riff play and it drops in volume at this one particular point and it keeps dropping in volume. Mm-hmm. Which made me think, like, are they actually looping some of these guitar riffs? Like, there's some construction going on at parts of this record that make it feel like, like I said, like a Beastie Boys or even Luscious Jackson kind of kind of vibe. So, yeah, I would, I would, uh, I would agree with that on something like late in the album, uh, one of my favorite tracks, uh, "Get Over Here." Um, that would probably sound like that seems like loop drums to me, and it has that really overblown in the red uh sound for the drums that um that you would uh you would get from like uh say like what you want off check your head yeah uh, uh, and stuff like that yeah track what is it uh looking through the 11 can't stop is credited mm-hmm. to money mark who played with the beastie boys throughout the 90s yep so i mean there is definitely yeah, that piano so, sounds sampled for sure. Yeah, and I don't know if if he actually—I I don't know if that's—he got the writing credit along with a band called Explosion. So I don't know if that was his band or I, I can't. There's no like link in mm. Wikipedia to describe what Explosion was. Okay. Mm. Yeah. I don't so know. can I can I can I bring up the thing I don't like about this? A record. <laughs> Go please, ahead. Please, please do. It could be one. Could be one of many things. <laughs> Can we start? Will we shift in that direction? Yes. Um, so vocals. Um, I, his Elvis kind of thing. Like it, it. It makes it all a little too campy for me. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of does the warble Elvis impersonator thing a little too much. Um, sometimes he gets away from it, and when he just screams or just kind of delivers a normal voice i'm down but when he goes overboard and, and goes into the sticky thing it just makes it hard to i know it's fun but it, it starts to cross a line into being it's too campy that i can't take the rest of it seriously uh it just makes it a little bit more difficult for me yeah i have that same problem 
sometimes I'm just like, just sing it. Don't <laughs> like he's so like there's spots where he's just like, uh, I I know what he's going for. I mean it's it's supposed to be ridiculous, so. But I I think I'd appreciate it more on a, I don't know, on a different level if if I felt like he wasn't. It's almost like he's mock, not mocking what he's doing, or the or even the concept of a song by yeah. doing the the shtick. So I don't know what do you, what do you think about that, Jim? Jane are kind of on the same boat with the vocals. Yeah, I mean, I I admit that I listened to this band in short bursts, um, and I couldn't really see myself as being an entire devotee of their catalog um you know that's why like when i listen to john spencer blues explosion i listen to this record uh and then that kind of gets me my my fix um i do remember owning at least on cd like following them to acme the record that came after that after this and uh i think plastic fang was you know one of their late period records i admit that i haven't listened to anything past that um so yeah it it takes a certain personality uh, or day for me to like really reach out and and jam this record um and i can understand i mean that's the thing there's one of i mean this is one of many things that people don't necessarily love about john spencer blues explosion um another one being a, a, a milwaukee journalist friend of mine i forget if it was evan retluski or matt wild so i apologize if i if i don't know which one because i follow them both pretty succinctly on twitter but one of them mentioned um you know, just in the age of internet rage and think pieces about breaking things down, whether, you know, things are sexist or racist or, you know, anything, uh, he asked, could you imagine a band like John Spencer Blues Explosion coming out now? And, you know, three white guys from New York City saying things like the blues is number one and putting on a mm. fake, fake kind of fake kind of like southern garage rock flair yeah. and you know whatever and that's an interesting question as a fan of the band i don't know how that would be yeah. perceived you know um uh i don't think there's a lot of that with jack white i think people who don't really care for jack white kind of pump that up a bit about how he's kind of like oh you know i'm the white guy who's gonna save blues or whatever um but at the same time, I'm a gigantic Jack White fan, and I think everything that he's doing is really um, to to bring it to light and to honor it versus exploit it. And I think that the I, I think that people could listen to John Spencer Blues Explosion and go, "This is if they if they came out now, I could see people writing think pieces that that this band is exploitive in some way, which is unfortunate." Yeah, wow, that's a really great point. I, I. I had this a similar thought. I hadn't formed it quite that far because obviously there's a song in here, RL Got Soul. So I pulled up some thinking that's referencing RL Burnside. So I pulled up some RL Burnside and started listening just to say, like, okay, well, the thread here is this is a thread to go back to. And that's the point at which it kind of hit me in terms of, boy, this feels, this could feel like they're mocking or, you know what I mean? Like not quite uh, or exploiting it. And I was a little bit uncomfortable. I think maybe the climate being different, um, just trying to understand what it is they're exactly trying to do. Once I've made that sort of direct connection, 
Um, and you're right. I think Jack White does it. He makes it his own enough that, you know, it doesn't feel exploited to me. Like he sings in his own voice. He doesn't do an impression of a blues singer from the thirties. You know, he, he actually right. sounds more like Robert Plant than, than to me sometimes than, you know, an old blues singer. So, yeah. and, and I think he very much, you know, is himself and he just has a lot of great, you know, influences and he, and he loves to celebrate that stuff and reference it and have people discover it and support it in every way he can. So I've never had a problem with him mm -hmm. um, in that way. But this record, I, yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't be on Facebook writing posts about it, but it definitely felt a little weird. Like, um, you know, a band I thought of when I listened to them, do you guys remember Dread Zeppelin? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? It was like Elvis, reggae, Led Zeppelin. And at some point, you're like, wow, this is brilliant. And other points, you're like, well, are they making fun of Elvis and Led Zeppelin or in reggae? Or are they, you know, it just gets complicated. And like, you know, in terms of art, yeah, it's great. But I'm sorry, I remember scratching your head. Getting the, I'm getting the vision of, um, I remember Beavis and Butthead watching Dread Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> not really having i think godhead was like that guy is fat like yeah. you know i have no idea what else they said but i remember them watching dread zeppelin um yeah like i don't think john spencer blues explosion is as bad i don't listen to them and feel guilty in any way i don't think they are nearly like the band i don't know if you guys remember the movie ghost world um where blues um, hammer Loose hammer, yeah, picking cotton all day. It's you know four, you know, like guys <laughs> up there talking, you know, singing blues, you know, yeah. you know, blues songs or whatever. And you've got Steve Buscemi's character in there, who's like, you know, a, a, a completely devout, like old school classic blues fan. You know, watching Blues Hammer you know? uh, after after the authentic blues guy, you know, opens for Blues Hammer. Basically, um, I don't think it's that. I don't think there's a lot of. Um, uh, you know, I don't want to get too necessarily deep into it, but I don't think there's a lot of like, you know, race baiting or anything going on here. Um, I think they, I think the, my, my thing is that I think they are genuine. I think they do love the blues. I think they were putting their spin on it by incorporating hip hop, incorporating garage rock, incorporating flair, um, you know, maybe a little tongue in cheek elvis -y kind of thing. Um, they were a unique band for that time. You know, and uh, I just think I don't think for as um, I don't know, I'd be hard pressed to believe that they were um, straight up uh, mocking it, you know, for sure. I think I think I think if you're straight up mocking it, you don't have eight or nine records. I think this is, you know, I think people who mock things like mock things in short bursts um, and, and kind of like I to hang your career on that is is pretty would be pretty weird. Yeah, I mean, Dread Zeppelin only had two records. So. <laughs> right, right, exactly. They're like, oh, we're done. Uh, speaking of though, I want to bring up the mocking point though. Um, somebody might be listening to what I just said about you know not making a career out of mocking, and then somebody would say, oh, well, what about Weird Al? Um, weird Al actually directed the video for for Whale, huh. uh, the, the third track on yeah. this, and, it, and and I feel when you mentioned Campy. I feel it plays into that in a positive light. I think you watch the video for whale and it's super campy and weird, but I think it, I think it does it correctly. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, you know, John Spencer's head comes out of a toilet at one point. 
I mean, it's just it's weird. It's it's weird for the sake of weird, and and I <laughs> still can't believe Weird Al directed it. He's in it very briefly. I think the Blues Explosion is is kind of marching down the street, and I think at one point they push Weird Al out of the way or something like that. So he makes his 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 his, his uh, Hitchcockian appearance uh, in his own work. Um, but you know, Weird Al's different. Weird Al is like you know t- like taking an actual song, uh, you know, finding a pun in there somewhere and remaking it and, and always getting the artists, uh, okay to be able to do that. And, you know, he's never necessarily mocking the, you know, the artist, uh, so to speak. He's like, kind of just like, you know, making the, um, making, making it his own in a, in a comedic fashion. So a couple other things I thought of when I was listening to it, one was, uh, um, I don't know, you, Tim, I know you're familiar with electric six. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when we saw them? before they were electric six and they were called the wild bunch. Yep. I feel like that they were, that was very much influenced by this. I don't know. It just seemed very similar in terms of just the attitude and the, it wasn't this like, I guess raw, it was more of a party kind of vibe, but right. Um, that band kind of came to mind. And then I don't know if either of you watch vinyl or you seen at least the intro to vinyl and the song that they have at the intro, but it's like a in the show set in 1973, but the intro song is. It's like this vaguely uh, blues-based, hip-sounding but nondescript song. Like the vocals sound like John Spencer vocals, but the lyrics are indistinguishable. Like you can't understand what the guy's even saying if he's even saying a word. It's just kind of just like her, 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 that kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and it's got like this, you know. It just reminded me of that, and and I've always been annoyed by that's that intro song because it's like, it seems like uh, it was made in a lab. Like we've got to create something that's, you know, would have been hip in 1973, but it's also hip now, and also shows our reference, you know, our our references to you know the roots of rock and roll, and is edgy. You know, it's like pieced together and calculated into this song that's at the end of the day means nothing because you listen to it you're like yeah this is just a generic song that's you know what i mean it's supposed to do so much and it ultimately does absolutely nothing so there was also a little bit of me feeling like it's parts of this record where you know it was so much of that was coming together to actually represent very little other than the energy yeah well i i feel bad for having a vinyl podcast i've not watched one moment of vinyl yeah neither Uh, have i and and i've heard mixed i've heard mixed things for sure um but uh yeah i I just don't have the hbo go or normal hbo or anything so i'm sure jump jump on youtube i'm sure the uh, intro (laughs) is on there you'll kind of get what i'm getting at yeah so let me ask you guys in terms of your overall feelings on this record is this an album that people who may not be familiar with John Spencer should check out or um, what, what sort of mindset do you have to have, I guess, to, to be suggesting this or, or what sort of mindset does the person that you're suggesting it to have to be? Do they, do you have to give them a warning ahead of time? Like you're not going to get any, you know, blatant hooks or anything like that. If you're, uh, um, what, what sort of warnings are you going to prevent or, or, or caveats? 
Jay, why don't you go first? Because I think because I, I I I think I think we'll do we'll do a good cop bad cop here, and and uh, and you can tell people kind of like the the chaotic prep they might have to do, and I can kind of try and sell some of the positive points. Well, I think if you're into the I don't know. I feel like if you're into the kind of the Detroit, the late '90s Detroit garage stuff, this is a good. If you've never heard this, it's hard you mean to like imagine. the dirt bombs and yeah, kind of- the the early, even the early white stripe stuff or the go or any of that. Um, even MC5, you know. I mean, if you're kind of oh, yeah. into that raw energy, uh, you know, simple, um, you know, song structure. Um, you don't mind some distortion, you know, obviously they're, they're overdriving everything at times, uh, to make a point. Um, I think this is worth checking out. I think it's, uh, especially for the time period, I might even go back and check out that record for this. Um, just because I don't know, I feel like, uh, a lot of bands kind of took this and made it more accessible later. Um, and I think it's a good thing to go back and kind of listen to the reference points. Um, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I just want to jump in there real quick. Um, this record isn't even their most, I have no idea what sold most out of their catalog, but if you bring up John Spencer Blues Explosion, like this record does not come up a lot. Um, I think Extra Width and Orange, uh, the the two before this, and then, I mean, I mean, they had others. I wasn't even familiar. I've never even heard the first three John Spencer records, which are uh, a reverse Willie Horton crypt and self-titled. I've, I don't think I've ever listened to any of those. So albums four and five, which would be extra with and orange. Um, those get mentioned a lot. This is their sixth record. And then the seventh record, uh, Acme um, gets mentioned a lot too. Um, so this is not a, for, you know, it's, it's weird. Like this is not, um, uh, for me, it's like the intro to this band and I would recommend this record for starting, uh, you know, an introduction into this band, probably solely on the fact that this is, this was my gateway, but, um, but yeah, I just, I wanted to, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Jay. I just wanted to throw in there that, you know, like this isn't even like a record that most John Spencer blues explosions fans would probably even recommend. All right then. Well, we're not going to recommend. No, I mean, (laughs) people should, I think people should check it out because it's such a divergent sound from what was, typically associated with the 90s in terms of uh mainstream popularity of alternative and indie music you know you mentioned sebado earlier and, and i feel like sebado gets closer to that sound especially on bake sale and harmacy because of there's you know s- structured sounds and and songs and you know, there's the connection to dinosaur jr and folk implosion and it, it kind of lends itself to being uh a little bit more acceptable with the people who are sort of into rock music but not necessarily into this deconstructed blues um whereas you got to take a couple more steps to um sort of reach this particular record but it's you know there are a lot of outliers in the 90s that bubbled up and we've touched on a few of them over the years but this is one that in terms of what eric davidson described as the gunk punk uh sound uh, this was one that we hadn't gotten to yet, so I'm glad we got to explore it. Um, so, uh, so for uh, to get an authoritative take, quote unquote, on mm-hmm. this, if you look at like Apple Music has a best of garage rock revival, so they're they're in that 
along with the White Stripes, the Von Bondies, the Vines, the Strokes, New Bomb Turks, Detroit Cobras, Black Rubber Motorcycle Club, Ravenettes, Black Keys, Kings of Leon. You know, so it's kind of running the gamut of the deconstructed noisy stuff to the super commercial pop Black Keys, Kings of Leon kind of thing. So I'm going to I'm actually going to go on, on a limb here. Maybe you guys will disagree with me, but like if you really I think the Black Keys, now that we mentioned them, are probably if I had to describe John Spencer Blues Explosion to somebody, you know, uh, who who was who was familiar with the Black Keys, but not with with JSBX. I think I'd have to say that they are a very dirty, raw, unpolished yep. version of the Black Keys. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the thing with the Black Keys. We talked before about you know what if a band like JSBX came out now? Like, what would people think? Well, the Black Keys are one of the most popular bands in the in the world right now, mm-hmm. um, and and definitely playing the white boy blues card um whether you like them or or not and um i don't know i don't see many think pieces about the black keys um (laughs) i know steve miller doesn't like them (laughs) right yeah exactly yeah oh yeah um but uh yeah I, i hadn't really thought of the black keys up until you just mentioned them um and some of those bands are you know again it's an apple music list but i mean they're vastly different like i wouldn't put John Spencer Blues Explosion in the same boat at all with like certainly the Vines or the, uh, or the the Strokes or something like that. I mean, Garage Rock that just that kind of shows how how vague of a list it can be. Yeah, uh, I don't know how Black Rubber Motorcycle Club gets on any list of Garage Rock. That to me, yeah, is is not even that's not even close to their genre right. of music. But but if you put on one of these songs. Say the the song they pulled is from the album Extra With. So, yeah, if you pull that song out, maybe to a general music listener who's familiar with Black Keys and said, "Hey, this is the Black Keys when they were you know fourteen years old," sure, <laughs> they sure. might go, they might believe that. They might be like, "Oh, I see. Okay, they were raw and punky, and then they, you know, polished things up, and yeah, the drums got louder, and the guitars got quieter." And, okay, I get it. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, I I think there's a there's a bit of a thread there. Yeah, yeah. Well, gents, we have uh, we have gone over the hour mark, and I think that's a good spot for us to um, to wrap this up. Jim, what's what's uh, your uh, what's going on with Vinyl Emergency? What's your podcast uh, landscape looking at looking like right now? Sure. Um, well, people can check it out on iTunes and SoundCloud, um, SoundCloud.com slash Vinyl Emergency, um, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, also uh, at Vinyl Emergency. Um, so I started this in January and I'd been for people to have some background on me. I've been interviewing bands um, off and on since I was about 14 or 15 years old. I'm 36 now and I've written for um, freelance for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. I have uh, wrote a bunch for modern-vinyl.com, uh, prefixmag.com and uh, appeared on, on other podcasts and stuff for a while and then kind of got the bug to do it and started up in January. So, you know, we haven't hit 20 episodes yet, but it's basically me speaking about vinyl uh, with a, a large range of people. And this can be people in the industry, uh, musicians who do or do not collect vinyl. But, you know, if they don't collect it, maybe they've uh, they certainly have put it out. Uh, so we talk about artistic choices they've made as far as vinyl variants and gatefolds and that sort of thing. 
Uh, I talk with record collecting friends of mine. Um, we talk about digging and uh, gems in our collection and, and that sort of thing. I've had uh, some some people I'm very lucky to have on the show. Uh, Brian Stack, who is currently a writer for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and uh, he wrote for Conan uh, on all the different Conan shows for almost 20 years. Uh, him and I talked about uh, records as well. Um, uh, both Damon and Todd from Braid, um, you know, uh, Josh Modell from the AV Club, Jay Ryan uh, from Dianoga, and uh, you may know his poster work under the name The Bird Machine. Um, bunch of different stuff. So uh, currently I'm trying to set up uh, some really cool things that I'm, I'm super excited about. The Record Store Day episode, I think if people go check out, uh, that gives you a good range of uh, people and guests to kind of listen to and talk about uh, their collections. Um, I really enjoy it. Um, and it's not just for record collectors. Like we don't get, we do get into some of the minutia of it, but uh, if people are just kind of into vinyl, um, it's for them too, because we talk about life stuff, um, talk about different jobs these people have had. Uh, a record collector friend of mine came over and brought me a jar of honey. And I was like, oh, no one's really brought a gift for me for hosting <laughs> show. And, and it turns out that he used to be a beekeeper. So we talked for 10 minutes about beekeeping because that's something I've never really talked to anybody about. So it's it's that kind of stuff. It's um, It always comes back to vinyl, always comes back to like the first records you remember or things in your collection currently. But also it involves a lot of uh, life talk as well. So if people are just interested um, in music talk and, and uh, just general good conversation, uh, I hope people check it out. Yeah, the Record Store Day episode was phenomenal. So oh, thank you on that. I Thanks really, so much. Really enjoyed that. Um, and then uh, I really like the uh, episode you did on the review of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame concert. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is, I think it it was interesting in that it was an insight of an event that a lot not a lot of people publicly talk about that attend. It's sort of you know you see it on TV and you see press reviews, but to, to hear first account of somebody who was there and how the how it all goes over when you're in the room. Uh, I thought it was really, really interesting. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, that's a, a good friend of mine uh, in the Rockford area, uh, Rob Clark, and, and his tie to Rockford and Cheap Trick and everything. Um, he uh, snagged a ticket from a friend of his to, to go check it out, and I thought it would be neat to have him back on. He was on episode four at length talking about his record collection and um, and uh, lots of other things, and I thought it would be nice to have him on for you know, 20, 30 minutes to talk about that experience at the – Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he's from Cleveland originally, too. So he had a, a nice statement about how he feels it should, you know, these things should be in Cleveland year round rather than every couple of years. So, yeah, I was and your your show is one of those where you really feel like you want to chime in. <laughs> and that, that was one of those times where I was like, I so wish I could call in or something right now. So, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, I'm from Cleveland. I actually worked for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for a while. The They were a client of mine. Oh, OK. And, uh, as you guys were talking about it, there was, I think, one point that I would have made that maybe makes helps make it uh, make some sense. Um, it's unfortunate, but so they are structured in two, really two entities. There's the Hall of Fame, which is New York based and basically run by the Rolling Stone music mafia. And then there's the museum, which is the true and that is cleveland base and that is the true music kind of nerd people who don't get paid a whole lot <laughs> you know what i mean and just yeah, do it yeah. because they love it and they usually have some sort of background in 
you know, um, history or, you know, something like that. So they're very academic. And so it, that's why I think you see a split in why they tend to do the events in New York and because that's all Hall of Fame, right? It's not museum. Right. Sure. And then the whole money issue, which I thought was fascinating that Steve Miller brought up. Again, you know, that is the Hall of Fame looking for the money, you know, yeah. the people they're inducting and making it and trying to constantly make it a business because it's more of the, you know, the Rolling Stone side of, of folks, whereas the museum is basically, you know, never well-funded, always scraping to keep, keep the doors open and keep the thing going. Yeah. Uh, and so anyway, that, that's my insight. I mean, this is going back probably 15 years at this point when I worked for them, but sure. that was very much a reality at that point, And I bet it's consistent now. So I'm hoping that with the, anything good of the RNC uh, convention being in Cleveland this year, my hope is that that would uh, build some hotels and facilities that would make it more, uh, uh, accessible and easier to host that concert yearly. Um, right. So anyway, that was my take as you guys were talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. And I, I appreciate hearing that because um, that info is, is really nice to have. I, I certainly didn't know any of that. And, um, you know, I'm the same way when I listen to podcasts, I think the sign of a good show is when you do want to chime in and stuff. And uh, if that <laughs> that's how you felt with, with mine, I, I appreciate it. I, I feel the same way with you guys listening to, um, you know, some of the, the Chicago, uh, you know, the talk you guys had, uh, was really good. Um, several other, you know, record dissection episodes and the entire 1996 episode was awesome. Um, you know, so that's what kind of got me into, into your show. And, um, yeah, I appreciate you guys checking mine out. The, the one, the other thing I would mention too, is that, uh, I've been having some, uh, neat contests from time to time too, um, through various, uh, friend connections at, uh, Warner Brothers and Rhino and uh, Run for Cover Records, uh, Intervention Records, which just repressed um, two Everclear albums, which are kind of higher to find normally uh, on vinyl. So if people are interested in getting some free stuff too, uh, there's usually some contests involved as well for listeners and stuff. Is the first one World of Noise? Is that the one? No, uh, they did uh, Sparkle and Fade and then So Much for the Afterglow. Oh, okay. I really like the first record a lot. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. it's a great record too. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so, uh, no, it's, this has been, this has been a blast and, uh, um, yeah, I'll, I, uh, I appreciate you guys having me on to talk about this, uh, weird, weird ass record. <laughs> well, you'll be back later in the year and I don't want to give it away yet cause it's, it's too far away, but we'll be talking about something less weird, um, down the road. Absolutely. No, I can't wait for that one as well. That'll be fun. Uh, want to remind everybody, speaking of contests that we are running, I think we're still running. We may not be. There's a contest going on. You don't know on. who would know. I'm trying to think of the dates. What's what's the... No, it's over. Somebody won. <laughs> Congratulations to so-and-so for winning the contest. You'll be hearing from us. Way to go, yeah. so-and-so. You can ed- edit that in right yeah. now. Way to go, insert name, for winning the contest. From insert place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have won insert prize. We'll have more contests coming up, so that means you should subscribe to Patreon, uh, our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash digmeout. For a dollar a month, you get all the access to uh, our behind-the-scenes stuff. You can help us pick albums. You can comment on them. You get early access. 
to records we're going to be reviewing or roundtables or interviews. You can pose questions for our interview subjects, and then you get bonus material uh, from shows when we actually have some bonus stuff like like this one. And uh, for the 250 level, of course, you get to pick a record after 12 months. So if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. Jim, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Jay, thanks for showing up for 277 consecutive episodes. Hey, no problem. Sure. <laughs> do you get some sort of Iron Man award for that? I know. I know. What do I get? You get it at 279. So just two more oh. to go. <laughs> All right. All right. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash dig me out or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com.